Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. We're very, very happy to have uh, Mr. Fonte here. I don't know if you walked into the store um, that there are words actually that uh, we quote um, by his father um, right um, at the door. Um, he's been at the, uh, a big supporter of the store for many, many, many years, and we're always very happy to have him here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome uh, Dan Fonte for his book, Fonte, a Memoir. Gonna get this right. Yeah. Let's see if we can lower this a little. Right. Oh, good. Okay. All right. I'm gonna do a little. Hi. Uh, a little show and tell, I think, first. Um, when I uh, when I began this book, I had to go back. Um, through my history with my father and the the idea of this book um, took shape several years ago but I didn't I'm a fiction writer and I really didn't understand the idea of writing a memoir and so it, it, it had the way I write is my father is very interesting <laughs> he used to plan everything out and abuse his family for three or four months while he was planning it, you know, and, and then write it in a spurt of like three or four weeks. I don't do that. I, um, I sit down and abuse the keyboard and, uh, until something comes up. And I write until then. So anyway, this thing took shape, but that's not what I wanted to tell you in my show and tell. Um, In 1992, uh, I was uh, jobless and almost homeless, and I returned to uh, my mother's house in Malibu, and she had this big house and she was living alone. And uh, I was going to a 12-step program, and um, she let me tell you how broke I was. Uh, I was using her seven-cylinder Chrysler New Yorker to get back and forth. They don't make Chrysler New Yorkers in seven cylinders. They make them in eight cylinders. But this one had, the other cylinder was for black smoke to pollute Malibu. So, and I would come home from these 12-step uh, meetings and uh, I had nothing to do but think. <laughs> so, so uh, one day I went out into my parents' garage, and uh, and I found my father's typewriter in the garage on a shelf with some junk, and beneath it or above it, I don't remember, were um, was a sheet of half a ream of typing paper, and. Um, and so I took them inside, and um, and I opened the typewriter. That that typewriter is here, um, and I began to type. And my father wrote his last book on this typewriter using that paper. I wrote my first book on this typewriter using that paper. So here's the typewriter. <laughs> Wow. 
and the paper. So that is, uh, that's what I found on the shelf. And uh, I wrote my first novel, which is called Chump Change, um, using that. And he, I think his, I think that last novel um, was Brotherhood of the Grape. He went blind and wrote another novel, but he dictated it. So this is the last, physically the last book he wrote. Um, the, the last, this is his, the typewriter he wrote his last book on, and the typewriter I wrote my first book on. So. Uh, let's give a hand for John Fonting this time. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read um, a few things. And uh, the first thing I'm going to read, because this is, uh, my new book is Fonte, a memoir, a family's legacy of writing, drinking, and surviving. And it's out for about four days now. And um, so it's about me and my father and our relationship and uh, the time we spent together. So I'm going to read in it, but before I do, since it's about my dad and about me, I want to read a couple of poems for my dad before I get started. And um, these two poems are from one of my books of poetry. This is called Gin Pissing Raw Meat Dual Carburetor V8 Son of a Bitch from Los Angeles. <laughs> okay, this was published about eight years ago. And I'll read a couple of poems that are for my dad. Stuck on my novel and wasting time, I drove up Beechwood Canyon in the hills today under the Hollywood sign and felt again how it must have been 70 years ago for my old man and Nat West and Fenton and Bill Faulkner and that pack of overpaid, restless, and disenfranchised screen doctor movie hacks. I looked down, looking down through the soot, I said out loud, you wanted this? A Spanish mansion on this hill and fame and hearing people whispered your name when you entered Musso's bar and blowjobs from not quite actresses after the card game and too many drinks at the Garden of Allah. Then I reminded myself that what you really bit left behind carelessly, unintentionally in these greedy hills could never have been bought and sold. John Fonte's gift to me was his pure writer's heart. You guys hear me in the back there? Um, so this goes back, I wrote this poem 11 years ago when the biography of my father first came out. And um, it's called Full of Life. I don't know if any, any of you know that book? Okay. Oh, thank you. Okay. Uh, opening the L.A. Sunday book review today, I saw it. Three full pages about John Fonte, my old man. Consensus wisdom has now pronounced absolute praise for a new national treasure. A biography is out about a passionate, crazy, drunken, angry L.A. writer. A volcano of a man, and instead of being happy for my dad, I was furious and the words tore at my heart and I yelled something shitty at my girlfriend down the hall in the bathroom about her cold coffee and I thought, fuck the fucking LA Times, they're 50 years too late, it can't help him now. He lost and gave up blind and in a stinking hospital ward where the night maintenance guys kept stealing his radio and the Dodgers had their worst season in years and I remember sitting with him and holding his hand to my cheek and thinking to myself, what a lousy way to die for a man who once held so much power, whose words held so much beauty that the sky itself was increased by a billion stars. Thank you. Thank you. So, a little.
Fonte memoir now. Let's see here. Uh, uh, this is about, for those of you who don't know, my dad was a Hollywood writer. He was a screenwriter uh, and a novelist, but more a, more a screenwriter than a novelist. So this is about those beginning days for him in the 30s and 40s in Los Angeles and Hollywood. In the early part of his marriage, John Fonte and his carousing pals, Carrie McWilliams, Ross Wills, Frank Fenton, Joe Pagano, Al Bezerides, and Jack Leonard, were regulars at Musso and Frank's Grill. Does everybody know Musso and Frank's Grill? Up on uh, uh, Hollywood Boulevard, um, and, and it was, it's been there 90 years, that place. I won't interrupt myself anymore here. Um, where many Hollywood writers of the period hung out. William Faulkner, Nathaniel West, Raymond Chandler, Chandler, and Dashiell Hammett were often visitors, and even the reclusive F. Scott Fitzgerald stopped in from time to time. In 2011, Musso and Frank's Grill still stands on Hollywood Boulevard, its interior virtually unchanged from how it looked over 90 years ago. Stanley Rose, a big smiling Texan and ex-bootlegger, who always claimed he was illiterate, owned the bookstore next door to Musso and Frank's Grill. Slender Yativ Moss was the bookstore's manager. Stanley once said, books, I hate books. I only open this store to hang out with my pals. Stanley counted Nat West and John Fonte as two of his best friends. Across the street and down the block on Las Palmas Avenue in the late 1960s, a renegade L.A. poet named Charles Bukowski frequented the Baroque bookstore, owned by a guy named Red Stodolsky. Buck and Red were great friends. Bukowski knew the history of Musso and Frank's Grill and spent many an evening between Red's bookstore and Musso's bar, often bending his elbow in homage to a forgotten author named John Fonte. Across from where the Baroque bookstore existed, Maselli's restaurant still stands, as it has for more than six decades. This area of Hollywood for years by reputation attracted writers and artists from across the country. The fact that Musso and Frank's Grill and Maselli still remain in Hollywood today is a tribute to accident and little else. Frank Fenton was one of my dad's friends and went on to become the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood. Despite having the disposition of a rattlesnake and the tongue of a hungover crocodile. Early on, he and my father established a diabolical method for selecting their male acquaintances. Both possessed predatory emotional instincts and could detect weakness in another man the way, for instance, a Hollywood pimp can identify a straight girl during a brief conversation at a party and within days have her in the alley on her knees in front of, his, in front of a John. When, Frank and F when Fonte and Fenton would meet a man for the first time, at their sacred turf at Musso's bar, drinks in their hands, they would probe the interloper in conversation, find a weakness in his personality, and then insult him, usually within the first five minutes of their introduction. Look, I realize we've just met, but having listened to what you have to say, there's nothing about you that I find remotely interested. interesting. You don't belong here. If a man could hold his own with either writer, eventually they might become friends. Once at a party, I heard my father confront a man by saying, if I wanted to, I could destroy your life in 20 words or less. <laughs> this was no glib, aside, or idle threat. John Fonte and Frank Fenton took no prisoners. Once at a, oh, that's a, I read that. The back room of Stanley Rose's bookstore became a place where poker was played and many a tongue lashing was administered. Hollywood was now well stocked with transplanted novelists and playwrights from the East who had moved West to cash in on the big paychecks Hollywood offered. 
Most dislike being uprooted and having their talent misused, and they endlessly berated the film industry and each other, blistering arguments over everything from studio bosses and politics to Broadway and the Pulitzer candidates to the best whorehouses in Laurel Canyon bounced off the walls. Aside from literature and booze and poker and studio work, this crew had one vital thing in common. They cashed their fat paychecks every week without fail. In the late 30s, drinking and hanging out with his pals at Musso and Frank's Grill became a daily habit for my father. At the time, an incident took place that perfectly describes the Hollywood writer's lifestyle of the era. My father's friend, the screenwriter Al Bazarides, had been asked by a studio boss to watch William Faulkner. Faulkner was being paid handsomely to write movies, but his drinking was out of hand, and more and more frequently he was becoming a no-show at the studio lot. The producer needed someone to escort Faulkner uh, to and from work. Bazarides, a junior writer, got the job. Early one afternoon, Bazarides burst into Musso and Frank's grill in a panic and grabbed John Fonte by the shoulder. Faulkner wasn't answering his phone at the Hollywood bungalow, and it would mean Bazarides' ass if he didn't get the little prick to the script conference by one o'clock. He desperately needed help and was sure Faulkner was drunk and would take at least two guys to sober him up and deliver him to Gower Street. My father agreed to help and he and Bazarides set off to Faulkner's bungalow. When they arrived, a drunken row between Faulkner and his wife Estelle was in progress. The couple refused to answer the door. Bazarides forced a window open and two men climbed in. Bill was dressed for work but drunk. Estelle was naked on the bed, a fifth of bourbon between her legs, screaming and throwing what was ever handy at her husband. John Fonte went to Faulkner's aid, pulled him into the living room, and then returned to assist Bazarides. Estelle was on her feet now, swinging her bourbon bottle at Bazarides. The two men subdued her, covered her nakedness with a sheet. Uh, at least for the moment, all seemed under control. Then a drunk and angry William Faulkner re-entered the room, and the battle commenced again. Estelle flung the sheet aside, emptied her bottle of bourbon on the mattress, grabbed a box of matches and screamed, you leave this house, you shit, and I'll burn it to the ground. I'm going to work, Faulkner slurred. I told, you, I, I told them I'd be there, I made a commitment, and I'm going to keep it. No sooner had the words escaped his lips than Estelle struck a match and the bed was in flames. You shit, she screamed, while laughing and dancing naked on the bed. Now you can go to work. Have a swell day. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> True story. Um, my family, my dad uh, really hated being a Hollywood writer <laughs> and, uh, um, and he wanted to escape but he was always, you know, he was always, you know, it's like the Godfather, they sucked me back, they drew me back. Well, but he couldn't avoid the paychecks, you know, and uh, that was his dilemma. He wanted to write, but he, what would happen was he would get into a, into a mode of writing screenplays, and when he would make the transition back to writing fiction, it was difficult for him. It would take him months, and he would, it was just wearing two different hats, and then he'd get a call in the middle of writing a book, and they'd say, hey, you know, we're going to pay you, I don't know what they were paying, several thousand dollars a week at the time, and he, was, he would be sucked in, and the project would be left. So he's always serving two masters, and it was very difficult for him. But um, in the early 50s, he wrote a book for money, and the book was called Full of Life, and uh, uh, it was a kind of a comedy, and um, 
<laughs> kind of a Eugene O'Neillian comedy, but uh, because there was real darkness in there, but my father had a wonderful sense of humor. Anyway, he made enough money to buy this house in Malibu on, uh, on Point Doom, on uh, Cliffside Drive. And I have a, in my office at home, I have a photo of Point Doom in 1950, 1949. And today, if you see a photograph of Point Doom, uh, it's palazzos and trees and all this landscaping. But in 1949, it was absolutely flat and nothing was on it. And the wind kept howling across it in the afternoon. And there's one house on Point Doom for, you know, 10 square miles. And it's the house my father bought. He wanted to be as far away as Hollywood from Hollywood as he... So Malibu wasn't Malibu in 1950 or 51. It was some place to escape to. So our family moved to Malibu in 1951, and um, the... Um, the owners of the house had owned it for a year and they sold it at a sacrifice because she had TB and they moved to Arizona. So um, here we go and, uh, and you'll find out about Rocco. The former owner, owners of our house, the Casalas, had left behind two 10-pound chihuahuas as part of the transaction. <laughs> to this mix, the old man eventually added white, shark-faced Rocco, a bull terrier. This thick 65-pound animal was great with both adults and kids and romp romped about our one-acre-sized property with the other dog. But as it turned out, the old man had selected the four-legged manifestation of his own personality. Rocco was Mike Tyson, Al Capone, a beast prone to overreaction and multiple animal homicides. <laughs> the dog's bloodlust showed itself during his first week at Rancho Fonte. At the time, we owned two dozen chickens. Being the family dunce, it was my task to feed them. One morning, I went out back and discovered four mangled, featherless corpses. <laughs> to cope with the problem, my father had a newer, stronger fence installed, but it too failed to avert his puppy's murderous propensity. In another week or two, Rocco had chewed through the posts and dug under the tightly wired mesh to continue his rampage. Eventually, an even more expensive wood-slatted barricade was erected and half a dozen of the pea-brained birds managed to survive. I'm going to continue reading, but here's Rocco and John Fonte. <laughs> For those of you who are Bull Terrier fans, um, a few months later, when Rocco was no longer a puppy, on walks along the nearby deserted Point Doom cliffs with either myself or my brother Nick in charge, our pooch commenced to maim and dismember other neighborhood dogs. Weimaraners, Irish setters, a collie or two, a mastiff, and finally a champion show boxer. The Point Doom section of Malibu was now a thriving community and it took a few months, but people in an ever-widening arc, our neighbors, banded together and drew up a petition to stop the bullet-nosed white menace behind the tall stone walls. One of our neighbors, Bill Melber, had recently moved his wife and kids into a spanking new house next door. Self-defensive Bill purchased a rifle after, after Rocco mangled his Airedale. By the time Rocco was 18 months old, deep scars were visible all over his face and body. John Fonte was hardly a people person, and he began to revel in the role of bad guy. Pop was a master at the stinging one-liner. When outraged area residents would uh, bang on our front door indignant and red-faced after their pet had encountered Rocco, they'd almost always leave our property the worse for the visit, sputtering curses and vowing retribution or police intervention. Two incidents endeared Rocco to my father for life. The first happened one afternoon when Nick and I were in the front yard 
helping Pop pull weeds. By now, Rocco was prone to repeated escapes from our yard, almost always motivated by a passing animal, sometimes even a jogger. A horn began honking furiously outside our wall. When we got to the front gate, we saw a frantic horse galloping by. Rocco was clamped to the animal's throat. The second incident occurred at almost the same time. We were getting into my old man's white repainted secondhand Cadillac convertible for a trip to a store when again we heard the blast of a horn. This was followed by a noise, a resounding thud, and the sight of Rocco airborne after being hit by a pickup truck. Getting out of Pop's sputtering Cadillac, we ran to the, doctor, the, the dog's aid. Rocco lay on the side of the road, motionless, his pink tongue dangling from his open mouth. He wasn't breathing. His body was lifeless. My father got down on his knees, as did Nick and I. No animal could survive a front-end collision and a 40-foot punt of his body into a pile of weeds. The old man began to stroke his bull terrier's thick neck tears welling in his eyes. Then the miracle. Half a minute later, Rocco emitted a low wheeze. Then another, his eyes open. He saw his master above him, above him, more coughing. He got to his feet, unsteady and dazed. A few seconds later, there was a rustle in the weeds nearby. A self-protective lizard was departing the scene. Rocco jumped up, chased it down, scooped it up, and crushed it between his jaws. <laughs> his owner's grin spread from ear to ear. Pop declared his bull terrier immortal. St. Jude, thank you. <laughs> Actually, I got another page, so thank you. <laughs> the dog's demise came when he was four years old. By this time, our family had attained a neighborhood status similar to that of the Manson family. <laughs> but John Fonte didn't care. He was Dr. Frankenstein, Quasimodo's sneering keeper. Now, outside our gates, bike riders, strolling, uh, strolling couples, and joggers accompanied by their pets detoured, cutting across the wide open fields rather than risk proximity to the evil beast residing at the corner of Fernhill and Cliffside Drive. With one exception, a rich stockbroker guy had just built a big new house at the end of Cliffside in the cul-de-sac. The house was the first of many that would eventually block my sexual education and access to the cliffs above, where in the afternoons I could view nude female sunbathers in the, in the arms of their happy boyfriends 60 feet below in the cove. Our neighbor's hacienda had three floors. It was a misconceived neo-renaissance something or other, complete with a statue of Cupid pissing in a fountain. <laughs> the joint was surrounded by high stone wall and featured a big swimming pool and tennis courts. When the broker guy moved in, he also brought along his two champion Doberman pinchers. On, our, on his first weekend morning in the Malibu sun, he was strolling up Cliffside Drive with his wife and children and his dogs, which weren't on leashes. When they arrived at the corner of the Fontes residence, a white torpedo-faced bull terrier appeared. Rockle had scrambled out of his newest undetected escape route. He attacked both 100-pound dobies simultaneously and was... Um, and an appropriate amount of bloodshed and anguish screaming could, could be heard taking place. Hearing the commotion, I ran toward our wall, boosted myself up, and then watched helplessly from 50 feet away. In the middle of the battle, the frantic mom and dad waved down a passing motorist, a guy in a Jeep begging for aid. Mr. Jeep took one look at the dogs ripping at each other in the weedy field, then punched the gas pedal and sped off. 
These Dobies, Hans and Fritz or Martin and Lewis or whatever they were called, were would-be show dogs and, and no match for Rocco. While one of the animals gnawed on him, my papa's pet bull terrier crushed its, its sidekick's front leg. More blood flowed, but it wasn't Rocco's. His thick white head and body were covered with it. With one Doby mutilated and disabled, Rocco briefly set upon the other, but number two was a fast runner and managed to escape. John Fonte made a decent buck as a screenwriter, but was not a rich man, but his neighbor was. Lawsuits were filed and court appearances ordered. My father refused to yield. In the end, after months of bitterness and confrontations in front of the Santa Monica courthouse, the matter was settled. Because our neighbor had been careless and had not leashed his would-be champions, Pop had to settle for payment of the vet bill only, not a paltry sum, augmented by a fat check for destroying the dog's future show potential. To my father's sadness, he had to concede to put down his dog. One afternoon, a few weeks later, he told his kids that Rocco was going to a new home and loaded him into our station wagon. The picture my father described was more alluring than 4,000 4, years in purgatory that Rocco deserved and the lethal injection he finally received. Pop said our doggy would go to a spacious ranch in the country above Santa Barbara where the owners loved bull terriers. <laughs> there they would play, be able to play with other dogs of his own breed and romp to his heart's content. Done deal. But Rocco's death triggered a curious reaction in my father. Perhaps to compensate, he began acquiring more dogs. Over the next few years, he had as many as 10 roaming the property at Rancho Fonte at one time. They were mutts mostly, but there was also an Akita and a half pit named Ginger and a crazy shepherd, uh, my father named Willie, after William Saroyan. Willie was a manic whack job. He developed an obsession for chasing balls of any side and a death grip refusal to release them. <laughs> A resolve not unlike his namesake, William Saroyan, who standing at a Vi Las Vegas dice table had maniacally refused to stop pissing away his money. Thank you. The last thing I'm going to read is here. Uh, And then you can ask some questions if you want to. But um, Harper Perennial, they, uh, I made a deal with them a couple of years ago, and they've published uh, five of my books. And, uh, and they're wonderful, and they do a beautiful edition. And they do something that uh, other publishers that I know of don't do, and that is they have a what's called a PS section at the end of their books, okay? So it's like personal stuff, and uh, uh, you know, meet Dan Fonte, and let's see, about the author, comments and thoughts on the photographs, you know, just um, letters from John Fonte to William Saroyan are in there, just some nice stuff in the back, you know? Uh, so I'm going to read, um, oh, and uh, a poem by my mother, Joyce Fonte. She was a poet, and so one of her poems is in here. So, nice stuff. This is called Back in L.A. In 2006, after the death of my mother, Joyce Fonte, I came into a bit of money. Enough for a down payment on a house. I'd supported myself by the seat of my pants ever since I became a writer, and my wife Erin and I were fed up with Los Angeles and the bumper car lifestyle of its citizens. As a young guy, 
I could drive across LA and take in the town and its neighborhood. The city was a big, gasping, giggling, drunken slut of a place, and her kisses were always wet and deep. I loved the Hollywood Hills and Laurel Canyon and Los Feliz and the Grand Central Market. I loved the crazy, disposable architecture. Los Angeles was a special place for me, tireless and unpredictable. It had, it, it had its own energy and freedom and a powerful pulse. Then around the mid-80s, it began to be more and more crowded and difficult to tra travel the streets. More and more of its citizens began settling their dis street disputes with a Glock or a SIG, and I was getting grumpy for what had been. Because I'm a born car guy, an LA kid who grew up in a place where that made everything within reach on four wheels, I missed what had been. I used to be able to cop dope in Hollywood, catch a great band on the strip, hang out at the bars in Venice, uh, drop by my favorite bookstore, and, and be home by 2 a.m. But that L.A. was gone, the town where you, had, you could be anything you wanted to be if you just had a clean shirt and gas money. Enough was enough. For me and my wife, had grown beyond, for me and my wife, LA had grown beyond its capacity to be livable. We had a new sun and we wanted to see some open sky and to be away from the clog of a big dirty city. So off we went to Arizona and the high desert. Then, almost five years later, we were swallowed by the desert. The house I'd paid top dollar for was now worth about half what I'd coughed up for it and I now saw myself pouring even more money down B of A's crapper. Money I no longer had. We felt smothered under Arizona's smogless sky and more than anything, we missed our amazing Pacific Ocean and our afternoon breeze. I'd been traveling a thousand miles round trip by car every month to see my friends and do readings back in Los Angeles, and now it was time to reshuffle the cards to see if we could come home again. So we pulled the plug. The upside was that my books were doing well and my fine editor at Harper Perennial was now encouraging and my passion for writing was as strong as ever. But for me, as for so many others, the American dream had quickly drawn, grown rattlesnake fangs. Surviving a crashed economy and rocketing gas prices was becoming serious business. So we scraped together our first and last month's rent in a new place called the Movers and held our breath. Now, after a few months back in LA, I've concluded that home is not a structure. For us, home is the place where the heart and history are stored. Home is where you can refill your roots while drinking strong coffee and staring at an endless ocean. And of course, I'm well suited to live in Los Angeles. I'm a bungee jumper by nature. Impatient, intolerant, and always curious. I love and hate at the drop of the hat. I drive too fast. So it turns out I'm back where I belong. <laughs> uh, we okay on time? We're doing, we're doing good. good. Um, I'm going to read one more poem. Uh, just for the hell of it. Um, it's about being a writer and, uh, and other things, but uh, it's my favorite poem. It's called To Mark. Walk with only words and books as your friend. Dream the dreams of deviant dead writer saints who coming before you drown the pain of their purest heart in vats of gin like a flailing unloved cat. Embrace selfishness and joblessness, smoke millions of unfiltered cigarettes, and glue your ass hopelessly to the evilest drunken cracker who'd trade your balls in a New York instant for the guy at the end of the bar with a pitted face and a $50 bill. Do not be courageous. Remember that all men are fools and liars, soulless captives of their own blood-stained necessity, and forgive nothing. Then maybe one day, like me, 
your feet aching and your head still raw from last night's festivity, you'll kick over a box or turn a page and find yourself face to face with the blurry eyes of God. So we have a, we got some time. Um, if you have any questions about the book or uh, John Fonte or like that, you can ask them. Okay, I do. Thanks for coming out. Uh, Thank you. You spoken a little bit just briefly about your creative process that you abuse a keyboard. <laughs> uh, could you just tell me a little bit more about what your creative process is like? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. How many people um, have no artists who agonize over their work? How many people know artists? <laughs> I don't agonize over my work. I, uh, uh, I mean, it rarely has it come up that I get stuck. I mean, you know, but um, writing to me is. Uh, uh, I'm not like my dad, like I said before. Um, I sit down and begin and begin to write, and I have maybe one idea that'll last two pages, and I start on it. And then, here's the gift about being an artist. When you're creating, the work starts to tell you what to say. Do you hear what I'm saying? When you're, when you're in the middle of that process, the work begins to tell you. So I start writing, and then I get up, and I, you know, I go away, and I get a cup of coffee, or I talk with my wife, and during the day, the next idea comes up, and then the next, and, then, and the more I write, the more ideas come up. So that's my creative process. Not only that, but... Um, I don't do it a lot. I, I, uh, I write for maybe two hours a day and I write for maybe six days a week. It's not work. If it was work, screw it. I wouldn't, you know, this is not work. This is, I really love this. This is, I mean, this is a gift. So thank you for the question, Jim. Yeah. Yes? Rockwell, did you write about Rockwell in your previous books? Yes. Was there any overlap between the dog your, your dad wrote about in one of his last books? Um, Which one was it? Full of life or... Oh, no. Um, I think the one he, he wrote about... Uh, didn't you write it? Wasn't that dog in a... My dog's stupid. Wasn't that an Akita? Wasn't that an Akita or something? Uh, they were all modeled after Rocco. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Joe. Uh, the fact that your father was such a, uh, a well-known writer, and uh, it seemed that you, like, obviously it's your DNA, but you seemed to not start writing till later in life. Hmm. Was it inspiring because you were such a great writer, or did it challenge you? Which ways did it challenge you to make you want to do it? Or did you stay away from it for a long time because hmm. of who he was? That's a really good question. I, uh, it's a really good question. Thank you. Uh, I don't know if you... I was a drunk for uh, 20 or 21 years, so I had... Uh, I was also a hustler, you know. I mean, I was... I worked on the street in New York hustling, uh, selling stuff. I drove a cab. I drove a limousine. Uh, I was a telemarketer. So I had no ambition of being a writer. Although, when I drove a cab, I have my PhD in cab driving, by the way. Um, I drove a cab for seven years, six days a week, 12 hours a day. And, um, and they didn't have air-conditioned taxis in New York in those days. And um, what I did while driving a cab was I... Uh, I would get ideas and I would pull over and write poems. And I would write these. So by the end of the day, I usually had a poem. And I had thousands of poems. The problem was, at the end of the day, I thought they were shit and I threw them all away. And I did that for years. My father was not 
famous when I was a kid. My father was just this guy who typed screenplays, you know, uh, that's what he was. So he was not, I mean, he had some friends in the movie business and occasionally, you know, some big name would drop by, but he was not, impre he was not impressed by Hollywood at all. So I wasn't, um, he was more a literary mentor, he wasn't, and he wasn't famous. My dad was not famous. My dad was just this guy who drove his Plymouth to MGM every day and hated every minute of it. He became famous in the late 70s as a result of a guy named Charles Bukowski mentioning him in a book. So my father uh, died. Uh, in fact, his, his first book caught on but didn't sell real well so he he died just as he was beginning to be republished so he was never um, never considered himself famous in his own life you know so I didn't have a you know you get this question what's it like to be the son of John Fonte what's it like to be the son of somebody that goes to work and is pissed off about it every day you know that's, that was about it although I must say this, he had a, an artist's sensibility that, he, boy, he was sharp. I mean, he, about literature, he was, I once, to give you an idea of John Fonte's personality, I once went into his bedroom and he had a, a nightstand that was about the size of this here, and it was stacked with a book, there might have been 50 books on it. I said, geez, Dad, I'm looking for a good book. I, must, I was probably 18 or 17. And he said, pick one. I said, what do you think of them? He said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean? He said, I can't get past page two of any of them. He was such an impatient reader. I mean, he had, I had books. We had floor-to-ceiling bookshelves. I said, Pop, did you ever read any? He said, yeah. He said, I read some Jack London. You know, and he would get, name me, you know, Nietzsche. I read some Nietzsche when I was a kid. But I said, what have you read in the last few? He said, nothing, nothing. He said, he'd read, he read bits and pieces. Of, so impatient as a reader. But that, that was his temperament. So thank you for the question. Yes, Radcliffe. Uh, thanks, Dan. It's very, very interesting. Uh, can you talk about your brother and the impact he had on you? My dead brother. You mentioned how you have more than one brother. I have two brothers. I have two brothers. Uh, my um, my older brother uh, was uh, my older brother drank himself to death uh, in 1997, and he was Nick Fonte dead from alcohol. 13142 to 22197. He was a genius. My brother um, made, fabricated the feet of the lunar landing craft. He was a precision toolmate. He was a genius. But he was also an alcoholic. And uh, his, you know, some people's feet, do you ever know people who their feet just never really touch the planet. He was just kind of in here in this room and in the next room. And that that was the impression of him. And then, you know, he had our family disease. You know, he was a boozer, you know. So uh, he checked out when he was 55. God bless him, you know. Thank you for the question. Did that answer the question? Thank you. Yes, yes. Just, I, 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 I think clearly said your father wasn't famous growing up, but nevertheless, you grew up with a father who was a writer. And, and on a date, and while it was not a, a any report perhaps, but a day to day basis, what was it like? Did he read stuff? Was there any sort of, you know, did you get glimpses into his life? You, uh, you know, I, that's a really, it's a really great question because I'm not. Uh, I'm a storyteller as well as I am a writer. I come from, my people are from uh, the Abruzzo Mountains in Italy, in central Italy, and my grandfather, Nicola Fonte, there's a whole section in this book about him, uh, 
he was a, a bricklayer, a stonemason, and um, he's a very difficult man. In, in Abruzzo, I was just there a week ago, um, <laughs> the summer lasts from about August 10th to about August 18th in, in, in this little town. And the town is called Torricella Poligna, and um, it's high in the mountains under Mount Maela. And that town, there are a thousand people, and there have been a thousand people for 300 years, and they're all my relatives, okay? <laughs> We're all cousins, and the mayor, I met the mayor, who's this very tall, he's like six foot six, the tallest guy within 10 miles. And I said, Where are you? who's your family? And he said, oh, my grandmother was named Fonte. Um, in the cold, it was cold almost all the time. In, in the mountains of Abruzzo and Torricella Poligna. And what my grandfather did was he told stories. And that's, and you give him two glasses of wine and a Tuscanella cigar and look out because he would, you know, he would take you for an hour or two hours and he would just make up this stuff about his favorite was Uncle Mingo and the bandits who challenged the Spanish overlords. And, you know, you would hear these stories and, and you know, if you asked him three days later, Uncle Mingo's horse was a little bit bigger and Uncle Mingo had now had a white hat with a feather in it you know and it just and he would just go on he was a wonderful storyteller so uh, really I'm from a family of storytellers and my father just began to write the stuff down you know. great question thank you yes yes you had mentioned in an interview a while back I'm not sure where but you said if it wasn't for a living God who you spoke to in your head all day long you'd be dead by now and I want to know if you can compare that to the earlier mention of the voice in your head every time you drank uh, Mad Dog 2020 when in chump change, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, that voice was with mm -hmm. you in your alcoholic days and it kept keeping you the alcoholic. So mm -hmm. it, the early, this voice is saving you now? <laughs> the, it's a great question. Uh, I don't know if... Um, how many people have a relative that has an alcohol or a drug problem? About half the room here. You know. uh, I discovered, you know, I've been without alcohol in a 12-step program for almost 25 years. I've discovered that my problem is not drinking. My problem is my mind. My problem, I got sober, and I what, I'm what they call... <laughs> I was what they call stark raving sober. Okay, and what that means is you've got a mind that's kicking your butt all day long and you don't have your medicine anymore. That's a dirty trick. Okay? And I had, you know, I, I spent a long time in recovery. I had a suicide attempt when I was five years sober. I just couldn't, I couldn't stand the noise in my head anymore. I couldn't stand it. And fortunately, the, this 12-step programs are based on a relationship with a higher power. Fortunately, uh, I've learned, that, I'll make a short answer, make this a short answer. I've learned that I can't solve anything by my thinking, that my solutions are spiritual. And so I go have a conscious contact with this thing that I call God, and that treats my thinking. So how similar is this God that helps you, uh, helps the madness in your head, how similar is that to your muse? Or do you consider yourself... I, I think... It is your muse, right? Yeah, it, it, it's all the same source. I mean, when I sit down in the morning, the, the first thing I, when I sit down at a keyboard, the first thing I do is say, God, help me, get, you know, speak to me, you know, and then I start typing. So it is the same. The treatment for what I have, and if there's something genetically, there's a, a prong missing with people who are like me and my dead brother. There's something that I, there's no, there's just this sense of overreaction and, you know, what's the old gag, uh, you know, uh, 
a, a drunk uh, who gets a flat tire on the freeway doesn't know who to call first, a tow truck or suicide prevention. <laughs> you know, that's what I suffer from. You know, I suffer from the disease of, oh shit, you know, and, uh, uh, and you gotta, you got to learn to live with that. You know, you got to find a solution to that. So that's a great question. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, yes. Do you have a favorite book by your father? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, in fact, I have two. Uh, my father wrote a book. His first novel. People, nobody, people don't know this, or maybe you do. Was a book called *The Road to Los Angeles*. Yeah, it's a great book, and it's uh, it really is probably postmodern fiction written by a man who wrote modern fiction in a time where they, people didn't have the sensibility to read something that edgy. So my father sent it out to several publishers and they all rejected it. They, oh, this guy, he's too edgy, he's too crazy, he's too volatile. And my father took the manuscript and put it in, a, in his file cabinet and it sat there for the next maybe 50 years. And I'm not a, um, a psychic phenomena spook, but uh, uh, about 15 years ago, by a series of coincidences, I found myself in the home of a psychic where all the best psychics are in Van Nuys. <laughs> and uh, between feeding her dogs and putting them in and out, uh, she said, and I'm not, no, I'm not kidding you, she said, your father's here in this room. I said, oh, great, say hi for me. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and she said, he wants you to find a manuscript that's in black covers in his filing cabinet and take it to his publisher. So I went back to my mom's house and uh, my mom still had her house in Malibu. She had this five bedroom house and with a bunch of cats and she lived alone. And so she had these filing cabinets. She had, my mother was one of these, had one of the, it was like the sensibility of a librarian. She was really, uh, I guess the word is retentive, but she was also, uh, uh, there's another word, she was punctilious, okay? She was really, and she did any piece of paper. If you ever talked to her on the phone, she had a manila folder with your name on it. That's the kind of woman my mother was, okay? And in her filing cabinet, she has everything, she had everything my father ever wrote. And so I looked through her filing cabinet. And I found this thing that was in black covers, like the psychic said. And I, I read it, and I, I just didn't get it. It was a manuscript of something else, and, and uh, which, by the way, was later published. But that wasn't what. Then I found what was named the Road to Los Angeles. Okay, later named the Road to Los Angeles. I said, and I started reading, and I said, oh wow. This is a great book. That was John Fonte at 19. Imagine. And he was angry. <laughs> and he was reading Nietzsche. And he was telling people about it, you know. <laughs> and so it's a great book. It is. A, so um, uh, that and Ask the Dust, I think Ask the Dust, because of the heart and the despair and the passion and the my the breeder's ability to identify with it, I, I I think is my favorite book. But that's a close second. So thank you for the question. Yes, yes. Uh, Thank you. This is sort of a tight three-part question. Did you read when you were little? Did Dad read you, and you read yourself? Uh, when I was about ten. My father was deeply troubled by his <laughs> by his second son because I was really not into much of anything. You know, I was um, I spent a lot of time alone as a kid, a lot of time, and I 
I don't know why it was. I was deaf as a child for a year, and maybe that had something to do with it. Uh, but I spent a lot of time alone. And uh, and finally, my father came to me. She said, "I'll pay you a dollar an hour if you'll read." <laughs> it was the worst deal he ever made because I read Jack London, and from then on, I was hooked. I was hooked. And uh, Jack London, I Call of the Wild was my f the first novel I ever read. And it was, it changed my life, you know. Thank you. Oh, what was the next part? Yes, when I, I, do, I did last night. I did last night, yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, my wife or I do it, but she's better at it than I am. But yeah, we do, because it's... Uh, he... He tells me the story. You show him the picture and he'll tell you the story around the picture. Right? Yeah. Are you have a detective uh, novel in the works? Thanks, oh. <laughs> Dave. Uh, uh, was that the end of the question? Yeah. Uh, so I had a... After I finished this novel, I finished or this book, it's not a novel, um, this memoir uh, uh, about ten months ago, well, I got to write, so I started writing. And I used to be a private detective in New York City, so I'm now writing private detective novels. So, and and the uh, uh, the one I'm working on now that's just finished, uh, it's with my publisher, is called Point Doom, and um, it's a it's a <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart. So, thank you, Dave. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Please. Do you have a specific type of writing structure that you go to every day? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. I have. My wife and I rented this house in uh, the west side of Los Angeles, about ten minutes from the ocean. And one of the reasons I like the house is it because it had three bedrooms, but outside, in back of it, there's this building. And the building is my office. And I go there, uh, you know, probably, I go there probably five hours a day. So that's my own space. And that structure is, uh, I just need to be alone. I just need to be alone to write. I just, I just need no distractions. I, the reason I write in the morning, you know, uh, Hemingway, and there are a lot of people that are famous for their literary habits. Hemingway wrote in the morning because around one o'clock is when he started to get drunk. So his mind was clearer in the morning, you know. I believe the same was true with Faulkner, too, because they were, you know, heavy drinkers and writers, you know. But so I'm fresher in the morning. Does that answer the question? Thank you. Yes, yes. Faulkner would stay sober the entire writing of the novel. And he would pack it in brown paper, mail it to New York, buy a couple of few fifths, go to his room, and drink himself into a coma. He literally needed to be hospitalized. And so, like, that was the pressure which is built throughout the sobriety. God, oh my. imagine, Allison. Yeah, imagine. Imagine. What's going to happen to your papa's uh, little brown uh, brothers or little brown? What was the novel that he wrote? Oh, does anybody know about John Fonte's Little Brown Brothers? Yeah. That's the, supposedly his opus and his his great work and all that shit. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the Little Brown Brothers was a story my father wrote. He wrote about a hundred pages. It was, I think, it was a a half a submission to, uh, and he wanted. He saw that John Steinbeck had written Grapes of Wrath. And he decided, and he actually loved and worked with a lot of Filipinos down at the docks in San Pedro when, uh, when he first came to Los Angeles in Wilmington. And he wanted to write a novel about Filipinos, Filipino immigrants working at the docks. And he wrote this novel, and uh, I, I think his editor was Pascal Cavici. And Pascal said, John, you're talking down to these people. He said, you're, you you got to rewrite this. So my father took it back and started looking at it, but he never finished it. He was very disappointed in it. But that, so that's the Little Brown Brothers. I, you know, I hope it's never published because... Who owns the rest of what he had left, the stuff he didn't, he didn't think... Who owns it? His, uh, you know, passed to Joyce and then when Joyce passed away. Yeah, it, it belongs to the John Fonte Literary Trust. 
I am one of the trustees. My sister Victoria Fonte Cohen and my brother Jim Fonte were the trustees. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Whatever happened to the boiler room getting published? Oh, that's that, that's uh, going to be published this year, and it's published in France too. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think so. I wrote a. Uh, I'm also a playwright. I wrote a couple of plays, but one of them was picked by the LA Times about 10 years ago as the best play of the year and uh, but it's never been published it's and then and the second play LA is such an interesting town because I had this wonderful play if anybody's a play producer I have a great play <laughs> it's called Don Giovanni and it's about my father and it's really a hell of a play. And I've had two or three stage readings, and we took it to New York, and, but no, we've never had it produced. So uh, that that's what's going on with my plays. I I just uh, if <laughs> if you if you think being a novelist is tough, try being a playwright. You know. <laughs> Any other questions? Thanks very much, you guys. I'm going to sign if you, uh, if you want to have a book. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.